called linguistic archives. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And you're probably wondering if I ever even returned from the Arizona Wild Wild West Festival. Well, my body is back here in Southern California, but my heart and mind are still out in the desert near Tucson. So uh, I guess that lets you know that I had a wonderful time. Actually, I was uh, going to post this podcast as soon as I returned, uh, a little over a week ago. But for this past week out here, we've had a heat wave, uh, otherwise known as a Santa Ana condition. And when it gets hot, I get lazy. Uh, But since we only get a handful of hot days each year, there's no need for air conditioning. And uh, I guess that means when it gets hot, I just sit back, sip a cool drink, and wait for it to cool off a bit which it now has done, so uh, I no longer have an excuse for goofing off. But getting back to the festival, I want to thank Life and the rest of the organizers and staff for putting on such a wonderful event. There were uh, several stages, and so the live music only took a break, uh, well, during a little rainstorm on Saturday afternoon. And, uh, oh, the music was excellent. There was just a really wide selection, and, uh, well, I only wish that I'd had more energy and could have stayed up later each night to hear some of the bands that I, I had to miss. Now, I know there's been some criticism of the festival circuit, uh, mainly by grumpy old curmudgeons who think that you young kids should get more serious and get jobs instead of going to music festivals. But I, for one, am not only not such a critic, I'm instead a huge supporter of these events. I had some really great conversations at the uh, Arizona Festival, and uh, we had a lot of really interesting people there. And contrary to what some people seem to think, the people attending these events aren't trying to escape the challenges of life, but are instead embracing them. For example, all of the people I met over the weekend, uh, well, they either had jobs, they were in college, or uh, were traveling musicians and artists. And contrary to what some old fogies might think about the young people attending these events, I found them to be not only well-informed, but also intent on creating better ways of living on this little planet. So I salute the organizers and the attendees at the Arizona Wild Wild West Festival and congratulate you on achieving something quite difficult, which is giving birth to a new festival. Not only was this the uh, first year for this event, it was also the scene of the first and so far only live sessions of the Psychedelic Salon. And if all goes well, then next year I'll be back again to host some more sessions of the Salon at this uh, great new festival. And for those of you that I got to hang out with uh, over the weekend, I want you to know how much I enjoyed it. I'm remembering all of you right now as I introduce yet another Terrence McKenna talk. And for you guys in Phoenix who are working the night shift right now, I don't think that there's uh, anything in today's program that's going to cause you to turn down the volume when your supervisor comes by. (laughs) Now, originally I'd planned on today's podcast, uh, and the next one that's going to follow, to be from the 2013 Palenque Norte Lectures. However, as I prepared the thumb drives that I've promised to the uh, donors from our recent pledge drive... I discovered that I didn't have quite enough McKenna sound bites to uh, fill my promise of a hundred of them. And so I'm doing podcasts 399 and 400 with uh, Terrence in uh, effort to uh, be sure that I capture enough of these little gems to add to your thumb drive. And uh, hopefully nobody will be too upset about the uh, delay in the Planque Norte talks, 
which will be winging their way to you in a couple of weeks. So now let's continue with the Terrence McKenna workshop that we've been listening to. As you know, this workshop took place in August of 1991. Now, at one point, uh, you'll hear in a little bit, Terrence takes off on a short riff about different types of mathematical logic. And while I did take some advanced math courses during my undergraduate days as an electrical engineering student, that was so long ago that, <laughs> well, I've got no idea whether Terrence is even close to correct in what he's saying. So uh, before you go repeating that riff to your friends, you'd better consult with a uh, friendly math major just to be sure. But uh, hey, let's get on with the show, and uh, you can be the judge of that for yourself. Something that uh, occurs to me as you're talking that might be interesting to pursue a little bit is um, that us when we're just starting an arts program, and in fact tomorrow we're having an auction for a dance platform, and uh, I've heard you say that you think that the arts, um, creativity, is sort of the answer. Um, and so that might be a topic or comment, at least, of something about what you have to say about the arts and um, how the arts are going to be an answer. You mean how can doing art save the world? Yeah. Or a smaller version of that. Oh no, we always go to the top. If it doesn't save the world, why bother even discussing it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, in a nutshell, and I'll go back to it, but uh, the reason I think it's so important is because when we grapple with the problems that are, you know many and complex around us the tendency to is to go for rational solution but you might bear in mind that the consequences of rational solutions are what we are dealing with at the present rationalism has been the dominant paradigm for problem solving for about 500 years and it has led us deeper and deeper into, uh, you know, contradiction, resource mismanagement, dehumanization, misperception of each other, so forth and so on. That's why, in a way, I think that the art reflex is more important because, uh, or more efficacious, because if we act from the point of view of wanting to create art, what we're really saying is that reality has outrun apprehension. We can no longer make rational sense out of reality. So the ego is set aside and the logos or the muse is invoked and then we produce art and the the uh, almost the distinguishing characteristic of great art is that it not be fully comprehensible to its creator so we then act as agents of the logos when we create art and the art that is created is then put out into the cultural environment of meaning 
and is then subject to a kind of natural selection similar to the kind of natural selection that goes on in a uh, biolo- in an environment where or, uh, biological species are competing. The shorthand way of saying this is the best idea will win but it won't win unless it competes you know you can't you can't win the race unless you run the race so rather than beating our brains against the end of history trying to create rational solutions to what is essentially an irrational situation in the first place it would be i think much better to become servants of the of the logos servants of the gaian mind and then to let sort of let the chips fall where they may let the selective pressures of intellectual history sort out among the many options and those that are important will uh, will come to the fore does that get it uh, as a brief pass why it's important it's important because it's anti-rational because it's anti-ego because it says we are vessels and agents of the solution but we can't it doesn't spring from our uh, our uh, ability to integrate data and reflect it back it's much more irrational than that this sort of goes to what i thought i would talk about a little bit tonight uh I used the phrase a few minutes ago reality outruns apprehension. Uh, this is actually a phrase from Moby Dick, not the part of Moby Dick that I will probably end up reading to you tonight. But uh what I thought would be interesting to talk about basically because of uh, its intrinsic interest and its recent uh uh intensification is sort of the question what is reality number 1 and then what's so great about it and uh, why bother yeah why bother i mean we we are we really uh, have a bee in our bonnet about reality when you get out of touch with it this is considered not a good thing reality is the ref- the unmoving reference point in a universe of flux to which we are always supposed to go back and re-reference ourselves and it's a funny concept first of all it is a concept it's not uh it's not an object with its own interior ontos in other words it it doesn't have being outside of the culture's assumptions about it this is the first big news about reality the reality of the witoto is a completely different reality from uh uh the west european or the canadian and yet the reality is it, we assume that there is a kind of bedrock and we call that reality then everything is referenced back toward that well i wanted to talk about it tonight because it's an incredibly um slippery concept i mean i would say uh, getting 
your hands on reality is about as likely as getting your hands on true love. You know, you're always going toward it or looking back at it, but you rarely have it uh, in front of you in the moment. And, uh, and yet the moment is where we spend most of our time. So we're kind of run ragged by the nostalgia for something we never knew is what it almost comes down to. So, first of all, whenever we want to talk about something seriously and profoundly, we have recourse to science. However, reality is a, uh, a term that if it's used at all, it's used in philosophy, in ontology, and epistemology. It is not a concept that you hear very often on the lips of scientists. Well, uh, why is this? Well, it's because science, which is the enterprise which seeks to carry out uh, a complete investigation of reality, has quickly satisfied itself that the beast can't be caged. It's very hard to uh, actually come up with something concrete. And that's an interesting notion that any discussion of reality will tend to come back to. It wasn't until the 1930s that Alfred North Whitehead, in his book Process and Reality, uh, created the great phrase that has now entered the language, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. You've all probably heard this phrase, or maybe you haven't heard this <laughs> phrase. But uh, anyway, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness is the belief that there is something somewhere which is real, which can be depended upon, which everything else can be referenced back to. And as long as you are victim of this fallacy, you are uh, philosophically naive and probably not at ease psychologically. Because, you know, it's like, uh, as I said, nostalgia for something you never knew. Um, the way science's method, which worked very well for the first 450 years, and by science I don't mean science going back to the Greeks, I mean uh, science since the Renaissance, mathematically based Cartesian materialism is basically my notion of science. Uh, its method is what's called reductionism. This is the theory that if you want to understand something, an atom, a plant, a society, a geological formation, what you do is you take it apart. You deconstruct it. You uh, dismantle it and catalog its parts and then define their relationships to each other. And then somehow when you recombine all these uh, maps of this deconstructed object, you then somehow possess it. And this worked very well up until well into the 20th century because it was assumed that matter which was taken to be somehow a primary constituent of reality, that matter was made out of tiny billiard balls, 
that were called Hamiltonian atoms, and that these distinct and concrete billiard balls could be located absolutely in time and space, and their relationships to each other defined as charge, force, momentum, um, spin, so forth and so on, and that out of these primary qualities adhering to these elementary particles, notice these words primary, elementary, that are telling us we're getting close to bedrock, out of this you could reconstruct uh, the world. The problem is, and I won't bore you with this because so many people have, uh, quantum physics showed that these hard little billiard balls were a, the most tragic example of the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. They don't exist. There isn't such a thing. When you go down and down and down, suddenly everything becomes um, paradoxical. Ordinary logic no longer applies. And... You know, without beating a dead horse, I would remind you that quantum physics, quantum electrodynamics, which is always held up as the greatest intellectual edifice ever constructed by the mind of man, is a complete mess in terms of the aesthetic of its logics because it requires two logics operating simultaneously. You have what is called ordinary Logic, the logic that we as animals intuitively gravitate toward, logic which says things such as, if it is A, then it is not B, if it is now, then it is not then, if it is after, then it is not before. This is kind of logic that assumes concrete objects in a linear time stream. But quantum physics then, to solve the problems it sets itself, it requires another kind of logic, an extremely exotic logic called Boolean algebra. And so what you get when you look at a quantum mechanical explanation of nature is you get what are called Isles of Boole embedded in ordinary mathematical logic. So you there are actually... Um, transition zones, very distinct transition zones where you simply switch logics in midstream, literally in midstream, in order to solve the problem. Well, this then gives you a nice uh, um, set of numbers in an experimental situation where you're trying to calculate the charge of the electron or the displacement value of particles or something like that. But it rests on this completely inelegant switching back and forth from one logic to another as the case requires which means the human observer is brought in and you get to decide which logic to use and then you can use one for a few minutes and then switch back to the other and go back and forth. And upon such shifting sand as this, the entire edifice of science rests. Okay, well that's really all I want to say about the scientific view of reality. It's just to... Yeah, Paul. I just wanted to say that... uh I'm not sure, you know, I don't see science that way, and I think I think maybe one has to distinguish between science and physics because uh, uh, in the 19th century there were many, many physicists who realized and argued 
against the possibility of a mechanistic universe. And quantum mechanics was the final death toll of, of that point of view, but it was argued for 100 years and maybe 300 years before that that mechanism can't exist, that reality doesn't exist. You mean, are you thinking of vitalism? No, no, I'm just thinking that that it was clear to, to many physicists, at least, in the last century, that we weren't going to be able... In other words, this notion of atoms was very clearly understood to be just a model. People, physicists at least, and some physicists, didn't confuse the notion of a model or a concept with reality. And in fact, argued quite clearly that uh, these concepts aren't reality. In fact, we will never find a mechanism for our observations. Yeah, well, the great enlightenment of 19th century physics occurred around the issue of fields because until uh, James Clerk Maxwell and Lorentz and these people wrote the equations for the electromagnetic field, it was denied that such a thing was possible because it had this quality, this apparent quality of action at a distance. And, and that completely freaked out 19th century expectations of how nature should behave. We take this completely for granted. I mean, there's a radio sitting in this cabinet that we could flip on, and if we weren't in such a uh, benighted geographical situation, we could hear hundreds of AM and FM radio stations. Well, those are wave mechanical systems that are, are filling this room, that are invisible to ordinary perception. To the 19th century mind, this was completely occult and astonishing. We take it for granted. Uh, Marshall McLuhan at one point suggested that the worldwide electrification of the planet through the spread of, of radio and television and electrical systems was actually the descent of the Holy Ghost into history, that electricity was the Holy Ghost to control and to understand because we can do it we don't need the second coming of Christ. We don't need divine intervention to destroy this planet. We can do it well enough on our own, thank you. So a huge responsibility evolves upon people within the global culture to try and come to terms with what is possible and what is to be done. And I think we have to doubt everything that we're told, all the theology that we have inherited served a different kind of world. I mean, don't forget that as recently as a hundred years ago, people believed that the earth was created on September 15th, 4004 BC. I mean, the, the uh, steam engine was the most powerful form of technology that existed. In the last hundred years, we have gone more than half of the distance that we've traveled in the last 50,000 years. And you can actually begin to see the outlines of what it's all about. As caretakers of the earth, as caretakers of intelligence, because this is all the intelligence that we know of, uh, we need, we must, in fact, come to terms with what is being 
asked of us. What is it that we are uh, supposed to be doing? How can we rationally order our societies to maximize the values that we inherently and intrinsically feel to be worth saving? You mean why? Why did we fall into history? Why did we create culture? What were we afraid of? What were we afraid of? I've been reading Camille Pablo and she says it's, it's that... You rascal. Oh. <laughs> uh, the, the, well, you know what she says. Oh, I know what she says, yes. So the chaos, the underworld, that quality, the violence of nature, the disorder... Well, we were, I think what happened, and you know, you've all heard me talk about it in operational terms, that we were as embedded in nature as the fox and the leafcutter ant and the polar bear until a hundred thousand years ago or something like that. And then, uh, this ability to signify, it has something to do with our relationship to shamanism and psychedelic drugs. You see, when you look at primates of all types going clear back to squirrel monkeys, you always get male dominance. Male dominance was not invented in the Middle East 3,000 years ago. Squirrel monkeys have alpha male primates and anthropoid apes. All of the primates have this problem. But I really believe that we temporarily overcame it about from, let's say, 25,000 years ago to 10,000 years ago. We temporarily overcame the tendency for male dominance to occur as a natural part of our um, being social animals. And this happened because shamanism evolved as an institution which relied on psychoactive plants to dissolve the male ego. And it's not only, I mean, we don't have to call it the male ego, that just polarizes and genderizes the thing. It's the ego. The ego is this strange transference of loyalty from the group to the self, the individual body. And then we call that the self. Uh, the reason this, so that psychedelic shamanism, specifically the use of psilocybin on the plains of Africa, was like a chemical inoculation against the formation of ego. And under the influence of psychedelic compounds, we evolved language and, um, you know, social roles and rudimentary agriculture and nomadism, all of these things. But then uh, the, the psychedelic substances which made this possible began to become less and less available. This is simply because of climatic change in Africa. You see the Sahara, what is now the Sahara Desert, was a veldt of, of grassland throughout prehistory. As late as Roman times, the Roman historian Pliny referred to North Africa as the breadbasket of Rome. 
it means that climatologically it was entirely different. And in that African theater, we emerged out of animal organization and into a world of language, cognition, ritual, ceremony, so forth and so on. And it was a style of uh, psychedelic shamanism complexed with an orgiastic religious style. Now the reason this is important, this orgiastic style, is because it makes it impossible to trace lines, <clears throat> excuse me, lines of male paternity. Women know who their children are because they see their children come out of their bodies. But men <clears throat> couldn't know that. And so uh, all values were group values. The tribe was as identified with true being as we now identify our ego. So people were altruistic not in any holier-than-thou or pietistic way. It's just simply how they were, in the same way that the members of an anthill are altruistic. I mean, ants don't flee from a problem because they're trying to save their own necks. They hurl themselves at the problem until it is solved because conservation of the group values is the most important thing. Well, when... But wait, so why could... Why, instead of being a... a a male society, why then couldn't couldn't this be passed on with a, when, by the female? I mean, the female knows who her offspring is. Why? But the female has built into her physiology a boundary-dissolving experience in the form of the birth experience. And in these African tribal societies, you know, it didn't happen once or twice in a woman's life. It happened a dozen or twenty times. So women, by virtue of giving birth, and by virtue of this experience of seeing another person come out of their body, can never get so firmly embedded this notion of their inviolate and unique self. So it's just biologically scripted into femaleness that several times in your life you're going to be melted down into this situation. And it's, it's, it's uh, you know, a very deep imprinting. In the absence of psychedelic plants or drugs, a male can go from birth to the grave and never have this experience. You know, and millions of people do that. And millions of, of people go from the birth to the grave without ever discovering the relativistic nature of the ego. They entirely identify it with the self, when in fact it isn't that at all. When we were... Now, the mystery in all of this is the fact that it's kind of reductionist to say that taking these psychedelic plants dissolves the ego because there has to be something then which rushes into this now empty space where the ego previously held sway. What rushes in to that liberated space is um, what I call the Gaian mind, that there is actually a hyper-intelligent being on this planet or in this planet. It perhaps is this planet, but it is sentient. 
It thinks. It can communicate. We are like atoms inside the body or cells inside the body of this enormous organism, which is the cause of our religious obsessing. The reason we're always running around looking for God Almighty is because we evolved on a planet inhabited by a superintelligence that we have lost contact with. And so we deny its intelligence. We, at this point, even deny its vitality. I mean, you know, the Judeo-Christian shtick is that nature is to be at the service of man, And, you know, this is a complete inversion of the idea that human beings should be the active hands of the Gaian mind. And when, and this didn't happen for any, there's no bad guy in this scenario. It's simply that uh, the the climatological conditions which allowed this. social mode that was characterized by nomadic pastoralism, orgy, and psychedelic shamanism was gradually replaced by, um, because of drying of the African continent, uh, the psychedelic substances were no longer available. And there was even an intermediary, an intermediate phase where the psychedelic substance, if it was the mushroom, was preserved in honey so that the, the great festivals became further and further apart in time and the ego enters then like a tumor. It begins to form in the personalities of human beings. If you're engaging in psychedelic intoxication and orgy at every full moon, there is no chance for the ego to get a hold. I mean, it's just an aberration that everybody jumps on and is gotten rid of. But if these ceremonies become yearly or less frequent, then uh, these funny notions get going in the more powerful males. Why shouldn't I control more females? Why shouldn't I have more of the food supply? Why shouldn't this area, in fact, be for me to hunt in alone? You get all these concepts of mindness that arise out of the growth of this tumorous, cancerous, maladaptive, self-defining, because that it doesn't serve. And we have committed ourselves to this thing so whole hog for the past five, ten thousand years that now we're so deep into it that it's not clear we can ever extricate ourselves from it except, and this is the raison d'etre for my career, is we have to go back to the archaic solution, which is, and it can't be orgy, That can't be the archaic solution that we implement because we're not a nomadic tribe of pastoralists, only 70 or 80 human beings. We're a global culture of 5 billion people. If we tried to resuscitate lunar orgies, we'd have a wave of social and sexually transmitted diseases that would probably finish us once and for all. So the orgy thing is not the answer. But the psychedelic option, 
still exists, it still dissolves the ego, and it still puts you in contact with viable group values. So this is what we, this is perhaps an answer. And I don't advocate it because I think it's a sure thing. I advocate it because I think it's the only game in town. Hell, if if hortatory beating on people could have worked, then we would have solved all our problems thousands of years ago because Buddha and Christ and all these other people, they had the right idea. It's just that ideas don't cut the mustard. It has to be an experience, a real experience. And, uh, and a boundary-dissolving experience is so corrosive to all the institutions of dominator society that no religion in the West since Ur has been able to come to terms with the psychedelic experience because it mitigates male dominance, hierarchy, and all the other things that are the methods by which we do business. Why do you think that nature would have it that there would be this window of opportunity to develop an ego to begin with? What? Well, it was that we had a a chemically mediated symbiosis with the Gaian mind. And and it it wasn't a locked symbiosis like you get in, in lichens or something like that. It was a kind of flirtation with symbiosis. It was that we took these psychedelic plants and contacted this hyperdimensional mind of nature and discovered that because it was hyperdimensional, because it wasn't constrained in space and time the way we are, that it had useful information, uh, information, very practical information. Where has the game gone? This is what shamans are good for, is to tell you where the game has gone. Uh, How will the weather be next year? Classical problem for shamans. Well, how do they know this stuff? How can you see it? Shamanism is essentially a going into a higher dimension to obtain information that then feeds back into the group destiny. Well, how can these shamans know this stuff? How can they attain to this superhuman level of understanding? It's that they get in touch with a different kind of intelligence. An intelligence to whom where the game will be next year is as transparent as where the game was last year because past and future don't exist for that intelligence. And our relationship to that intelligence was one of of devotee to goddess or supplicant to mystery. But eventually the connection was broken and meanwhile the ego was arising and the ego is like a mirroring of this larger psychic function. In other words, the ego is our pathetic attempt to uh, create God on our own. This was Julian Jaynes' theory. He thought, you see, that up until as late as Homeric times, which is 800 BC, that um, if you got into a tight spot and were about to be off or something, 
miraculously a voice would appear, would, would come on, it would just turn on in your head, and it would say, you should get out of there. And people thought this was a, a god. It was a god. But eventually, they were able to um, assimilate this psychic function into the personality. And then they said, well, that's not God talking. That's me. That's myself. And this is the idea where God is then located inside my body. And I take orders from this inner God that I call the ego. And if it is allowed to develop, and it's strange, it always develops along these patriarchal lines, you know. It brooks no babbling. It's not interested in argument. It knows what is to be done. And then the only time you get a problem is when you place one ego in contact with another. And then, of course, they go at it, hammer and tongs. But originally, what we had was a symbiotic relationship with this Gaian mind. And this is the mystery that haunts this planet, haunts our history, haunts our psychedelic experiences and our dreams. It's that there really is a controlling super-intelligence that can be contacted through psychedelic drugs, presumably religious practice, when you see how long they've been making the claim, although it must be a high-noise signal when you do it that way because they seem to get it always skewed off in some weird direction that then reinforces paternalistic institutions. But this is what all this goddess talk is about, is either we are becoming more sensitive to the presence of the Gaian mind, or the Gaian mind, under pressure of the approaching apocalyptic crisis, is beginning to raise its voice louder and louder and louder. So that now, you know, when you go into nature loaded, every rock, every tree, every stream is saying, awaken, awaken, come to focus. There's minutes to go, as William Burroughs likes to say, you know. So we have to connect up. And so we are, in a sense, the hands of this diffuse supermind that is spread through nature. And our presence as thinking, reflecting, culture-building individuals is not simply an amazing but meaningless set of circumstances. Our presence as a global technical civilization signifies the onset of the final crisis. It's as though, you know, you watch a pond and the surface is smooth, mirror smooth. Well, then it begin, the surface of the pond begins to churn. This is the signal that something huge is about to emerge out of the pond. And human history is that turbulence on the still surface of nature. Nature would never have allowed a, th a phenomenon like human history to get going were it not in response to a deeply felt planetary crisis that is approaching at ever-accelerating speed. And 
I have enough faith in nature to believe that when the moment finally is upon us, we'll be ready. But the tools are being laid up right now. The ultimate tools, not the prototype tools. The bow and arrow, that was a prototype. The catapult, that was a prototype. The B-17, that was a prototype. But thermonuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missiles, this is not the prototype. This is the actual instrument by which you could save a planet as well as destroy it because you're at last dealing on the level of energies necessary to make those kinds of changes. And I think the evidence is all around us that the historical mode cannot persist It can't. Just draw all the curves. Output of petroleum distillates, output of energy, population growth, proliferation of weapons. When you draw all of these curves, they can't be propagated 500 years into the future. Sometime in the next 50 years, uh, you know, we're going to have to uh, make or break what history was all about. And the, uh, the arising of global culture, the arising of an integrated electronic awareness, high-speed computational machinery, tremendously powerful weapons, spacecraft, all of this stuff looks to me like the raw material for a um, salvational exercise. And notice that it's not only a way to save the planet, it's in a sense a way to save not only ourselves, but to save our ancestors as well. This, if we can, if we can act in a moment of great crisis to preserve the planet from ruination, we will redeem human history. Then it all makes sense the pogroms, the migrations, the brutality, the stupidity. It was all toward a purpose. And then somehow those lives that were lost in those pogroms and invasions and migrations and so forth are given meaning. A meaning which they will totally not have if we simply blow the planet apart and wreck nature and ruin the oceans and blow off the atmosphere, then it just looks like a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury that signifies nothing. So it's as though the meaning itself is in our hands. What shall we make of this? Is it just, as James Joyce said, atoms and ifs? Or is there a a plan, a process, a plot, and a role for us that will uh, give us some dignity in this situation? Which otherwise, up to this point, as far as I can see, uh, we totally lack. I mean, it's all very well to spend an afternoon wandering around the Louvre, but on the other hand, you know, spend the next day wandering around the slums of Calcutta, and you just really have to wonder about what the human enterprise is about. Now I will read you this little quote from Moby Dick, which sort of gets to some of this. Are you all familiar with Moby Dick? Are any of you familiar with Moby Dick? You should be. I mean, this is the greatest work of 
prose ever written by an American without contest, I think. I mean, I like to think that when human history is written, Americans will be remembered for two things. They went to the moon, and they're the people who produced Moby Dick. I mean, this is our odyssey. This is our odyssey and our Iliad. Uh, Nobody's ever gone past it. Okay, there's a scene early on. You all know that it's a whale hunt, right? Okay, so there is a scene where the captain who is running this show and driving this thing, this hunt for this whale, to a truly apocalyptic conclusion, because for him this is no hunt for an animal. This is a confrontation with an alien god, and he is determined to murder this thing because it, as he delicately puts it, dismasted him, meaning it, it bit off his leg and destroyed his sexual machinery. And his first mate, who functions as Christian right reason, wimpy little Starbuck, says, Vengeance on a dumb brute, cried Starbuck, that simply smote thee from blindest instinct? Madness! To be enraged with a dumb thing, Captain Ahab, seems blasphemy. And Ahab says, Hark ye yet again the little lower layer. All visible objects, man, are but as pasteboard masks. But in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the moldings of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike... Strike through the mask. How can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? To me, the white whale is that wall. Shove near to me. Sometimes I think there is naught beyond. But tis enough. He tasks me. He heaps me. I see in him outrageous strength with an inscrutable malice sinewing it. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate. And be the white whale agent or be the white whale principal, I will wreck that hate upon him. Talk not to me of blasphemy. I would strike out the sun if it insulted me. For could it do that, then could I do the other, since there is ever a sort of fair play. And that was the point I wanted to make about two points, striking through the mask to achieve reality and that we can do it because there is ever a sort of fair play. The field is level. The cards are not stacked against us. If we play our hand right, we can take the whole game. They wouldn't have it any other way. That's right. By the way, I'm getting into that book by Camille Paglia called Sexual Persona, and it's definitely the read of the season. And I didn't realize uh, the publication date is listed as September 1991, so it's hot. And um, um, I read the section on Moby Dick, which comes very close to the end, and if all of it's as good as that... 
then it's really something. I mean, I haven't, there hasn't been that much fun between the covers of one book since Marshall McLuhan wrote The Gutenberg Galaxy. So, you know, if you think of yourself as a feminist, an art historian, a literary critic, uh, an egghead, uh, all these things, she's just outrageous. I think we have to get her here as fast as possible because she's really freewheeling and makes a lot of people mad, which is always a good sign, I think. It's called Sexual Persona by uh, Camille Paglia. Maybe some of you saw about a month ago in the Image magazine, which is the insert uh, in the Sunny, there was an article about her and they put her on the cover. And she's very controversial and says lots of provocative things. And the article stressed her dumping on Derrida and Lucan and Foucault and that whole crowd and saying, you know, all of them put together worth, were not worth uh, one page of William Burroughs, basically. And, you know, not that we care about this, but in academia, this is big news because they're in awe of all those people. I tried to read Derrida. I couldn't make head nor tails of it. Uh, it just seemed to me like anti-thought. All of this is inspired by a number of papers that have recently been called to my attention. If I can get this the way I want it. And one of them is called, and I recommend it to your attention, it appeared in the June 1989 issue of Zygon, and it's called The Omega Point as Eschaton, Answers to Pannenberg's Questions for Scientists. And this is, uh, it's by Frank Tipler, and this is... uh, a very interesting article which tries to argue for the reality of uh, Christian eschatological hermeneutics in the light of information theory and actually makes a number of points that uh, I thought I would be alone in making for my entire life. And and now I see that I'm actually... uh, an infant in this department and that these people have thought more deeply and more widely and with a more stunning commitment to radical ideas than I could have even conceived of. I mean, it's humbling stuff. I mean, they're talking here about uh, computer strategies to resurrect the dead, not some of the dead, all of the dead, and a number of ideas that I confess were completely um, alien and exciting to me. And I also have a correspondence between Frank Tipler and Hans Moravik, the author of this little thing I just read you, and a paper by Moravik that apparently has not yet been published called Time Travel and Computing. And time travel is sort of what I wanted to talk about this evening, from a certain peculiar perspective. One of the ideas that I've had to embed in my system fairly uncomfortably, because I think of myself basically as a skeptic and a rationalist, 
is the idea that um, the world is on the brink of a tremendous transformation, a transformation on a scale such that it can really only be compared to the events which created the universe in the first place. This is what ties this series of notions to um, Christian eschatology because the unique um, preoccupation of Western religion, whether it be Judaism, Islam, or Christianity, is this weird insistence on the end of the world, the uh, collapse of reality as we know it. You don't get this in um, Eastern thinking. As you all probably know, Hinduism uh, is a theory of what is essentially a steady state. There are cycles of outpouring of phenomena and then regressive cycles when everything recondenses. But the universe is basically thought to be eternal. And this then poses no problem for um, rational expectation because it's very easy to imagine an eternal universe. In Christianity, to preserve the uh, rationality of expectation, the um, eschatological event, I guess I should explain that term, all these E-S-C-H words, eschaton, eschatological, so forth and so on, mean we're referencing the final things. The branch of theology that is called eschatology is the study of the final things, the end of the world. And the way Christianity has handled it to preserve rationality, at least superficially, is by setting it far, far in the future. Then it doesn't irritate or, uh, you know, demand a great deal of thought and consideration. My um, notion has, against my own intellectual gravity, has pushed me toward the conclusion that it is near, which puts me in the same category as all those people in cartoons carrying <laughs> signs which say, you know, repent for the end is near. And I, I, it's the thing, I mean, I feel, sh I don't know, shy. I don't know if I have the decency to feel shy, but I feel always reluctant to talk about it because it is the most counterintuitive position in the system that I've tried to elaborate because not only do I think it's near, but I think that uh, we can say when it is. Um, and just so you aren't kept hanging in suspense. <laughs> Tomorrow at 8.30. <laughs> close, close. <laughs> um, December 22nd, 2012, at dawn, Eastern Standard Time, uh, the universe will roll up like a uh, one of those blinds, you know? It will just roll up. The, fall, the stars will fall from heaven. Reality, as we know it, uh, will completely disappear to be replaced by something else. Now, 
why would anyone think such a thing? I mean, what set of rational premises could lead to such an irrational notion? Um, well, I I have this idea that there is a counter-entropic principle built into the universe that has not re- has not been. Um, described by science at all. It may have been noticed, but never in its inclusive nature. And I call this anti-entropic principle novelty. Novelty uh, it has been increasing since the very first moments of the uh, birth of the universe whether you subscribe to the orthodox cosmology of a Big Bang, which I would like to sit on the fence about, it seems to me, I mean, you may think my notion is unlikely, but you should remind yourself that what science believes is that the universe sprang from nothing in a single instant uh, from an area whose diameter was less than that of the electron. It seems to me this is almost like the limiting case for the incredible. <clears throat> I mean, if you could believe that, what would you resist believing? Uh, I mean, if, if you believe that, you may be interested in a large bridge over the Hudson River that my family has had for generations and that we're willing to sell you for a dollar. Um, But this is what science believes. This is what most scientists believe, although in all fairness, in the last five years, this has gotten more shaky. Not everybody now believes in the Big Bang. Well, what I would like to substitute for the Big Bang is what I call the Big Surprise. And um, the Big Surprise... It doesn't come at the beginning of the universe. It comes at the end of the universe. (laughs) Which seems to me, you know, if you want to... The battle of the singularities. Orthodox science says the entire universe sprang from a tiny area in a single instant. The notion that out... I mean, it sprang from pure nothingness. It sprang from a point-like dimension that was, so far as we can tell, utterly without any quality whatsoever. This seems to me the least likely environment in which to seek a singularity. I mean, how can we imagine, unless we call upon God Almighty, uh, a perturbation in a flawless nothingness that would usher into, you know, 10 high 47 particles of many types streaming outward symmetry breaks, so forth and so on. It seems to me if you, that all cosmological myths require a singularity of some sort, but some singularities are more likely than others. And so in my notion, and I call it my notion because so many people have told me I'm completely welcome to it. In in my notion, um, the place to look for a singularity is in the most complicated circumstances imaginable, not an unflawed emptiness, 
but a world where you have atomic chemistry, uh, polymer chemistry, organic chemistry, uh, advanced animals and plants, uh, languages, cultures, technologies, information coding and regurgitation systems. In other words, the more complexity that you can pile into a situation, the more likely you're going to get what is called an a, uh, emergent property or a singularity or the big surprise. And so, um, as I look back at the history of the universe over any scale you care to name the last five years, the last 500 years, the last 500 million years, the last 5 billion years, there is a generality which seems to hold, which is complexity once come into existence is retained and folded back into the interstices of being to produce yet more complexity. This is linked, and at least appears linked, to the cooling of the universe. Uh, At the Big Bang, the temperature of the universe was trillions of degrees, and there was no... um, there wasn't even uh, atomic chemistry. There was just a, uh, a plasma of electrons. And then after some time measured in nanoseconds, the temperature of the universe fell sufficiently so that uh, stable orbits could be established around atomic nuclei. And then you have the emergence of uh, uh, prim, you know, simple inorganic chemistry. Well, then, after a further fall in temperature and much longer period of time, you get uh, the thermal disruption of chemical bonds falls below the limit where you can get uh, complex molecular structures. And then a whole new set of emergent properties building on the levels which preceded until finally you get the birth of stars. And that is basically huge lumps of condensed hydrogen, the simplest of all elements. The hydrogen aggregates into stars in such amounts that tremendous pressures are set up at the center of these hydrogen masses, sufficient pressures for uh, uh, fusion to begin to take place, and fusion cooks out uh, iron and other heavy elements, including carbon, and carbon then becomes the key to the next level of emergent complexity. And from there to us, it's only a series of these declensions. But what's interesting about these declensions into complexity is that each phase happens more quickly than the phase that preceded it. So that the... Um, and we actually are not peripheral to this process. We're at the center of this mandala in several, by several different ways of thinking about it. The most 
convincing, I suppose, is uh, that the density of connections in the human cerebral cortex makes the human cerebral cortex without contest the most densely ramified material in the universe. We carry within ourselves then the most complex uh, organization that has been laid on to the material universe. And it seems to me this is a strong argument that we are at the cutting edge of this process of emergent novelty. Now, up until a million years or so ago, we were just one more animal wandering around on this planet, albeit a sort of weird animal, bipedalism, binocular vision, complex pack signaling. But on the other hand, wolves and dogs and ants have complex pack signaling. But um, then we began to elaborate. Notice that uh, up to that point, the most... um, sophisticated information storage system that novelty had evolved was uh, genetic storage. Storage in long uh, polymerized molecules that templated other molecules to reproduce themselves. Well, with the emergence of human language, you get what is called epigenetic Uh, storage and conveyance of information in poetry, um, dance, uh, ritual of all sorts, artistic endeavors of all sorts. This is the unique domain of human beings and it represents a vast acceleration in the rate at which this kind of informational business can be transduced. Well, then, so it flows forward, and then about 12,000 years ago, we really get going by uh, building cities, beginning to notch wood uh, with the, our observations of lunar cycles and stuff like that, and then you know the rest of the story. I mean, it's just a, a jump from, as I said the other night, chipping flint off a core to hurling an instrument outside the solar system so that it can look back at our planetary system. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And uh, we'll pick up on Terence's little journey from the Big Bang until now uh, in our next podcast, which will be number 400 and will come just before the end of my ninth year of podcasting from here in the Salon. However, uh, I prefer to think of it as the beginning of my 10th year. And since I'm still kind of behind in my correspondence with our pledge donors, I'm going to keep my remarks brief today so that I can uh, get back to my email duties and let you get on with your life, your truly wonderful life, particularly when you sculpt it in your own unique way. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. (laughs) 